I'd like to begin by reading from the Old Testament and New out with the passage. And I'm going to turn first to uh, Hebrews, uh, sorry, first, first of all to Isaiah uh, chapter 6 and the, the first eight verses, where we read of Isaiah's vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And the second reading is in Philippians chapter 2. Verses 5 through to 11. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. On uh, Christmas Day last year, if we can uh, get the slide up on that one, a historic event took place. Um, let's see if this works. Let's have a go. No, it's not working there, my gadget, so I'm going to rely on you. Thanks very much. A uh, historic event took place. Some of you will recognize this as the James Webb Telescope launched on Christmas Day of last year. I think it was meant to go up on Christmas Eve, but there was a delay. And uh, up it went after all the work that had been done on this and all the advanced technology. This huge telescope with a, with a, a sunscreen and a, a solar panel and reflectors and everything else about the size of a football field, so they say, went up into space 
at the cost of $10 billion. Its destination is 1 million miles from Earth, and once it arrives there, it hopefully will begin to send images back to Earth of uh, as near as they can get to the origins, or as near as as scientists describe the Big Bang. Uh, 200 million years after the Big Bang, which is, I suppose, in scientific terms, a, a a small period of time. But nevertheless, they're looking to peer back right to the origins. But uh, I'm aware of a... They could have saved a bit of money because there is a cheaper way of doing this. And it's... uh, If we can go to the next slide there, for £9.79, you can get one of these. And with it, as you open up the pages, peer back further still, not just to 200 million years after the Big Bang, but right to the point of creation when there was nothing and yet everything came into being and beyond that. And not only see the origins in the scriptures, but also discover the ultimate cause of all of the origins, the great designer of the whole universe, God himself, the creator, who spoke and brought all things into being. And read of the word of God, the Son of God, the Christ, who is the mediator, the agent of creation. So not only does it tell us about the origins of the universe, it tells us more than this. And in fact, we go to the next slide here. We have, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. And then in John chapter 1 and 1 to 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And we can see the parallels, the similarities between these two passages, the opening verse of Genesis and the opening words of the prologue of John's gospel. Seeing in these that the origin of all created things is God and the mediator or the agent is the word of God described here. That is the son of God. Let's read down to to verse 9, shall we? In him was life. And, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And if we were to read down to verse 14, we would come across these words. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. So there's no doubt 
whatsoever here in reading the prologue of John's gospel that the word who was with God and was God and became flesh is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It's quite explicit here. The disciples saw manifestations of the glory of the Lord from time to time, even in the incarnate Lord. Something of his pre-incarnate glory seeped through. The prayer of Jesus recorded in John 17 and verse 5 uh, reads this way. Jesus prayed, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. In that prayer, he refers to the glory he had with the Father before the world came into being, which was largely hidden as he had divested himself of this glory when he became the Son of Man, the Son of God. But today our focus is not on the incarnate glory, it's on the pre-incarnate glory. You'll have to wait until next week when uh, Michael Healy will continue with John, John's Gospel, chapter 1, and his, he is going to be focusing on the incarnate glory. It's very tempting to stray into the incarnate glory when speaking about the pre-incarnate glory of God. What is the pre-incarnate glory? What indeed is divine glory? In modern language, I would call it the super awesome wow factor of who God is. Revealed to us in any measure at all, we are in awe of who God is in all of his glory. Nothing can be known about God except that God reveals it. God as creator of all things has made all things subject in a sense to us. Scientific research is a is a, a search for knowledge and understanding of the universe that exists that has in some measure been made subject to us. But God is not subject to us. We are subject to God. And the only way that we can find out about God is not in a scientific laboratory but is that God reveals who he is to us. And what we have in the Bible is a progressive record of incremental revelations of the divine nature given to us through the acts of God, Old Testament and New. Supremely in Christ, we learn about who God is Referring to God and to Christ, the concept of glory has its roots in encounter with God. When God reveals his glory, he he reveals something of his divine greatness, his radiance, his splendor, his divine quality. And these experiences of encounter trigger within those who encounter God in this way, like Isaiah did in the temple, a sense of awe and wonder, and praise, and honor, and worship. The word kavod, you can see here 
on the screen is one of the Old Testament words, or the main Old Testament word used to describe the glory. And it refers to brightness, splendor, majesty, magnificence, and radiance of the divine attributes of God, who God is in essence, that can be seen or unseen. The word Shekinah, which is another word that we find here, and perhaps one you've been familiar with, the Shekinah of God refers primarily to his dwelling place. And the Shekinah of God is often accompanied with cavod glory. But it need not be, as with Christ, who divested himself of his glory when he left heaven's glory. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, not of divinity, but of glory. He was clothed in humility. And yet he was God with us. He returned to his glory after his death, resurrection, and ascension. As with his prayer to the Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the creation of the world. Along with these Old Testament words, there is a New Testament word, doxa, which is the translation or the equivalent of the uh, Old Testament kavod. It's associated with honor for all of the brilliance of Christ's divine being. And there is a a book called the Septuagint, which is a, a, a translation in the Greek of the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament as we as we know it. And the Septuagint translates the word kavod as doxa. So it is the equivalent. So when you come across the word glory, and if you, it's very easy these days to go, if, you, if you're familiar with the internet and you have a smartphone, to be able to go into the Greek interlinear and learn a little bit about the Greek and look at the words that are there, like doxa. You think, what's the word for glory here? Oh, it's doxa. That's kavod. That's describing something of the essence of who God is in all of his majesty. It appears that the concept of glory in these words, these words were shaped, this concept was shaped uh, more and more by the experiences of encounter with God, when God appeared in the theophanies and in the miracles and in the presence. Wherever the presence of God was revealed, it informed the word through the experience of those who beheld what God was revealing to them in the encounter. Perhaps better than ask, what is the glory of God? We could ask or request what Moses requested. Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. This was a bold request. We find it in Exodus chapter 33. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. 
I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And the Lord said, there is a place near me where, I, where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. This underlines to us something of the awesomeness of who God is, that Moses was told he could not behold the Lord and live. It was more than he could have withstood. And this is a manifestation of the same glory of the pre-incarnate Christ. We might want to pray that prayer. Lord, show me your glory. But when the glory of the Lord appeared, and there are some Old Testament passages that describe this, it was a more than scary experience. Sometimes judgment fell upon people when the glory of the Lord appeared. Because they were not in a place where they were able to withstand. They were unholy. They were full of sin and shame and guilt. And the Lord's presence came to them as a judgment rather than a wonderful experience. So be careful what you ask for if you're not ready for the encounter. But I think it's something to remember when we come to the place of prayer. I love one thing about communing with God in prayer is I come to him as a friend. I feel that I've been a friend. I'm a friend of God. Uh, it's not an over-familiar. I'm not, it's, I'm not a friend. He's not an equal. Not that kind of friend. But I'm not an enemy. I'm no longer an enemy because I confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And although I'm full of guilt and shame and sin and fallenness like every one of us here, I can come to one who is meek and lowly of heart, who invites me and invites every one of us who labor and heavy laden to come to him and rest. But I come to one who is glorious beyond my capacity to even appreciate who God is And therefore, the more I'm reminded of that, my prayers also are accompanied with awe and respect that one so great should consider me to be a friend. The fact is that according to Philippians chapter 2, Jesus Christ divested himself of this glory when he came to be among us, when he became incarnate. Sometimes that veil was lifted a little, such as at the time when Peter, James, and John went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw Jesus transfigured as, as bright as any light could shine. And they were in awe of who he was. There are manifestations of the 
glory of the Lord that we could read in the Old Testament and in the New. In the Old Testament, the burning bush, the glory of the Lord filling the temple. God is, in essence, glorious. But I would say don't be misled by his humility. We should never become over-familiar with God or with the Lord in our prayers and in our communion, in our fellowship with God. I'm not saying that we should revert to some kind of Victorian idea of a, a God who, is, who, who says children should be seen and not heard kind of idea. I'm talking about the awesomeness of God. The more we appreciate who he is, the more we will be inclined to honor him with the honor that he deserves. I've spoken with people who, who uh, you don't actually realize the context that they are in. When uh, John Stott, for instance, I met John Stott at Carberry Tower. He was taking a conference, the late John Stott. Diminutive chappy, even smaller than me, and I'm wee. Uh, lovely, godly man. Quiet, gentle, um, relational. And uh, I spoke with him, and, and people might meet him in the street and not realize who he, who he was. At one time, chaplain to Her Majesty the Queen. Uh, he was clothed in a humility, like Christ-like humility. When I think of the Lord Jesus Christ, what does he do? He comes not only in the flesh, he washes the feet of the disciples. Nobody, none of the other disciples were prepared to do this necessary task, but Jesus did so. Clothed in humility, And having divested himself of pre-incarnate glory, he appears in this way. Don't be misled. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is Aslan in the book of Narnia. He is one to be afraid of and yet not afraid. John, the author of this gospel, and his brother James once had the audacity to ask Jesus because they had not seen past the incarnate Christ to the glorious Lord who he was. They had the audacity to ask him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left when you come in your glory. They didn't know what they were asking. They didn't appreciate who he really was. But if we turn to the book of Revelation, we find that when John sees the ascended Lord in all of his glory, he, quote, fell at his feet as though dead. This is who he is in his pre-incarnate glory with the Father in heaven. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, speak of Christ's being, the glory of God. He's the essence of God. We have this here in the first two verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So we have here 
a revelation that Jesus is God. Jesus is as much God as God is or can be. Jesus is as much God as the Father is God and as the Holy Spirit is God. For we have here the Trinity or aspects of the Trinity. One God, yet three persons. He is distinct from Father and Holy Spirit, but he is fully God, as God can be. And when he became man, he was as much man as man can be, and as much God as God can be in the one person. When we read down a little further to verse 3, we have here not just the glory of God, but the glorious word here is the mediator and sustainer of creation. Verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. It's put in the positive and in the negative here. The word here is a word in action. The idea is not just a, it's not um, an idea here. It's not a philosophical idea when we talk about the word. It's a word in action. There's an activity of God here as Jesus is the mediator and sustainer of, of all things. He is active even today. This would have suited, this, uh, the use of the uh, expression word here would have suited Jewish and Greek or Roman uh, audiences because in the synagogue, the expression, the word, was sometimes used as a substitute for the divine name. So when they read here the word, in the beginning was the word, that they see in that the divine name. But it suits the, uh, the, the Greek listeners too in that in their Greek philosophy, they understood the, the expression, the word, to describe the rational and ordering principle behind all created things. So they would think this is, whoever was reading this would understand exactly what John was writing about. Down to verse 4, it reveals Christ as the author of life. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. In the creation narratives in Genesis chapter 1, there are three distinct acts of creation. There was creation of something from nothing. In the beginning, uh, God created the the heavens and and the earth. Then there's the creation of life is a second distinct act. There's a particular word that was used for these two. And the third one is the creation of humankind, creation of man. God's three particular creative acts are described distinctly in this way, and one of these being the creation of life. Imagine, imagine, well, can we, could we imagine it? the world in which we live without life at all. Imagine a universe without life. Nobody would be conscious of it except God. But God has given us life. Life is something that's it's beyond my description. It's, it's like trying to describe what love is. You can't see love in a test tube, and neither can you see life in a sense, as a concept. 
Um, we are intelligent, living, conscious beings, conscious of an existence. And it, and it opens up a whole field of philosophy as we start to ask the, the big question, why is there not nothing? It's because we're living that we can ask such a question and explore uh, these fields of philosophy that move us into areas of thinking that we didn't think was possible. But God is the author. Jesus is the author of life. Moving down to verse 5, we have light as well. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It happened in creation. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And it happens in the new birth, when the Lord reveals truths to us from his glory in heaven, through the word and through the gospel, illuminating our minds and showing us things which we haven't seen before, and exposing the deeds of darkness, feel, causing us to feel exposed before the light of God, the brightness of God, when there are things that we might wish to hide. That's our experience of when the Holy Spirit begins to stir in our midst. It was Isaiah the prophet who witnessed something of the divine glory. John chapter 12, 14 tells us that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. Isaiah said that, says the quote, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. And I think that looking through the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, which I read at the beginning, is probably what is referred to here. In Isaiah's vision, he looked upwards, first of all. And he saw the glory of the Lord. He saw angels. He, he saw cherubim. He, he, he's the, the place in which the, the temple was filled with smoke. And, and he, he was awestruck by this awesome vision of the glory of God. It was the glory of Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ. And then he took an inward look. His response was, I am ruined. He felt his awful sin sinfulness, having seen the awesome holiness of God. And this is what it's like when the Lord appears, because he appears in our day too. I have two volumes in my bookshelves on um, uh, Tom Lenny, if, uh, some of you may be familiar with his two volumes on Scottish revivals. There's, there's one which is uh, it's from the 16th right through to the 19th century that he covers. Scotland Ablaze and Land of Revivals are the two. Scotland Land of Revivals are the two books. Well, they are volumes, but they're more like reference volumes, unless you're really a scholar and would like to work your way through it all. But Tom Lenny's certainly done some research. Uh, but he describes some of these interventions of God when something of the glory of God appears before praying people and revival comes. I was having a little dip into it for the sake of this uh, sermon and I, I came across a description of revival on Sandy. Now some of you might say, where's Sandy? Well, it's in Orkney. It's one of the Orkney Islands. I love Orkney. 
I have not yet been to Sandy. But uh, prayer meetings for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit were taking place in Sandy in Orkney. They'd heard about revivals and uh, a spiritual awakening that was already taking place in Carubba's Close Mission in Edinburgh. There was a free church minister on Sandy whose name was Matthew Armour, and he went along to Carubba's to witness this. And as very often happened, when people experienced the appearing of God and the encounter of God, they, they carried with them something of the spirit of revival as they, as, they, uh, as they left that place. And he took this back with him to Sandy. And he arranged for a day uh, to be set aside for waiting for the promise of the Father. Earnest prayer took place. And here is an account of what resulted when the Holy Spirit came. Uh, Some were seen outside, leaning against the wall, crying for mercy. The vestry was crowded with persons in deep earnest. On entering the church, the scene baffles description. A feeling of awe at seeing so many human beings groaning and crying and strong men writhing in agony under a sense of their guilt. Some who had newly found peace were singing. Young and strong men were shouting with an almost superhuman voice, declaring what God had done for their souls. Many were lying prostrate around the pulpit and all through the church so that it was hardly possible to move without treading on some of them. It was between four and five o'clock in the morning when they went to their houses and gathered in groups for prayer. And they say it was the happiest night they ever spent in their lives. And history is full of accounts of when something of that pre-incarnate glory of God leaks through and results in an encounter with the living God. Verses 6 to 8, John the Baptist, uh, who is uh, not the author, John the, this is John the Baptist, John the Apostle we have here as the author, uh, is a witness to Christ, the light of the world. And verse 9 tells us, was coming, he was coming into the world. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. I think that leads in very well for next week. We'll leave it there for today, but that will lead in very well to next week's sermon when there'll be a continuance uh, looking at the incarnate glory of God. We're going to, in a moment, I'm just going to lead in a prayer just now. And then we'll move into uh, communion. My life has been like Peter's boast of loyalty above all others. Devotedness that supersedes the host of all my Christian sisters and my brothers. 
resolve expressed from deepest gratitude and love, responding to your condescending grace that changed my wayward heart and reached me from above. Now I stand upon the shore before your gazing eyes and hear your, do you love me? As I look into the mirror of your gaze and see so much within myself that I despise. I ask if I might, by your grace, devote the rest of my remaining days to to being someone who, in all their ways, before you gives you honor, glory, praise. Lord, as we have reflected on your incarnate glory, pre-incarnate glory. We feel a little bit like Peter did. Plenty of resolve, but so much failing. And Lord, we pray for mercy and grace. We'd ask that we might be in a place that should you appear in all your glory before us, we would not feel so much ashamed, but would rejoice in who you are. Amen.